You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. October 29th, 2007. Episode 43, Neuroscience and the Enlightenment Machine. In this episode, we speak with neuroscientist and Buddhist meditator Daniel Rizzuto on the relationship between contemplation and neuroscience. We also discuss the possibility of creating an enlightenment machine and explore some of the startling implications. Listen in to hear what the implications of an enlightenment machine might be. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. Today I'm talking to Daniel Rizzuto. He's a neuroscientist and works in Seattle at, is it North Star Neuroscience, Daniel? It is, yes. Okay, so, and this is a new job for you, right? It is. Just started about a week ago. Very okay. excited about it. Nice. So you must be enjoying the weather out there in Seattle. <laughs> Big change from L.A. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Daniel's interesting in that he's not just a neuroscientist, but he's also an avid Buddhist meditator, and he's been influenced pretty strongly by both the Zen and Theravada approaches, and, and we share a common kind of uh, teacher in, in Daniel Ingram. So yeah, we, we just wanted to get together today and kind of talk meditation, neuroscience, state management, state awareness, technology, technology, yeah, any, all these topics, just there's so much interesting stuff that just doesn't seem to have been really discussed much, at least not in the, in the netcasting world for sure. I figured you'd have an interesting perspective on these things, given your kind of dual and even more than dual backgrounds in this kind of stuff. So. Yeah, this is definitely some of the biggest interests I have in terms of meditation, Buddhism, neuroscience, technology, and the, the intersection of all of those is, is uh, just super exciting as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, you have a formal kind of academic neuroscience background. Did you, you went to, was it Caltech or is that I, where you ended I, up working? I, yeah, I was at Caltech. I did a postdoc there for several years um, and then worked there for a couple more years. Uh, I did get a PhD in neuroscience at Brandeis University okay. in Boston. Mm. And there I was doing kind of basic neuroscience research, just trying to understand the brain. And that, that's where I received you know, my training. And then after that, I went to a more applied position at Caltech in Los Angeles. And there I was actually doing what's called brain-machine interface ah. work. And I was in brain-machine interfaces, exactly what it says. It's interfacing uh, machines, mostly computers, with the nervous system in order to both input data into the nervous system and also extract data out of the nervous system um, without relying upon uh, muscles or people actually behaving, but actually tapping into the neural signals and underlying neural code. So that was, I went from basic to applied research and then finally wound up where I am now doing clinical research. So I've been moving towards the clinic and actually helping people. That's what's mostly motivating for me. And at North Star Neuroscience here in Seattle, I'm actually uh, managing a clinical trial to treat depression using a brain machine interface. This is a cortical stimulator. It's actually mm. implanted under the scalp and under the skull. And the idea, and this is what we're testing, we haven't proven this, is that this could potentially help people who are chronically and severely depressed. This is, of course, for people who have failed multiple 
uh, other types of treatments. And just as a disclaimer, I, I should say that uh, any of the opinions I express here are no, in no way representative of North Star Neuroscience. Yeah, best, best to keep, the, keep your job, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Cool. So that sounds like amazing work. I'm sure that'll come up in this conversation because you've actually been out in the field gathering data, seeing this stuff in action and seeing what the actual application of these kind of technologies is. And that's just super fascinating. Both you and I know there are interior technologies, contemplative technologies that really in some ways work in the same fashion. There's an injunction, there's something you do, and then you're receiving data. And then you kind of go to your colleagues, your peers, and say, hey, this is what I experienced. Like, what did you experience? Absolutely. And there's, Absolutely. in a loose sense, there's some sort of process that looks like the scientific method happening with interior technologies. And I wonder why that's not really recognized as much. I guess it's just not popular, but... <laughs> it's, uh, there's historical reasons for this, but essentially, mm -hmm. because these interior technologies rely on subjective reports, mm -hmm. they've been discounted for hundreds of years in the scientific community because the scientists have been unable to like replicate these technologies and subjectivism is is a kind of a taboo in science and mm -hmm. it's only now as we're starting to uh, have sophisticated tools for looking at the brain including MRI that people are starting to even think about consciousness but it's been hundreds of years where consciousness has been avoided mm -hmm. almost like the plague again part of the reason is that if you don't have a highly refined tool for for assessing these subjective states there's a lot of noise in the data many of the scientists quote unquote aren't using these highly refined introspective tools mm -hmm. and so there was a there was a movement who was the guy at Harvard in the early 1900s named William James William James mm -hmm. who tried to use these uh, introspective techniques but failed yeah, because he didn't have a highly refined tool like shamatha, for right, instance, that right. could that could aid in the in the assessment and the analysis of these states. It's kind of interesting because there's a body of knowledge that really most people don't have any direct experience with, and we basically rely on those reports to inform the way we look at the world. And it's interesting that contemplative reports haven't really made the same impact, even though it's it's really the same kind of thing happening in a sense. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. I, I, I agree. But I think that's, that's in the process of changing. I think as more uh, using these brain uh, scanning and brain imaging technologies, people are starting to get interested mm -hmm. in these, you know, introspective experiences and, and states. Mm. And I think as these fields start to intersect, we're going to uh, learn a lot more. Mm. What are some of the other ways that these technologies and the, and the data that, that's being collected on brain, you know, neurocorrelates, how else is this being used? I mean, it's not just for contemplative purposes. Like you said, your research is that you're helping on is with depression. And, I, you know, a lot of friends I have have biofeedback devices that help them, you know, entrain certain states of mind that aren't mm -hmm. really contemplative in nature. What are, what are some of the different things you're seeing these kind of technologies used for in terms of inducing different kinds of states? There's quite a few. Uh, I'm mostly familiar with the medical technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of non-medical technologies out there, as you're saying, in terms of you know, neural feedback. Mm -hmm. I'm not as familiar with those. I prefer uh, my preference. I'm kind of a, a purist. Mm -hmm. the meditation is, is really my technique, and mm -hmm. that's 
Um, and that's how I prefer to maintain a state awareness and, and manage my own states. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't been using technology too much, not to say it's not useful. I just haven't tried it too much. But in terms of there's a lot of medical applications that are starting to become available of these neural interfaces in terms of, like I was saying before, treating depression. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, we know that in really depressed patients, they have a reduction in activity at the part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So the first thing that comes to mind is, well, how can we upregulate the activity in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex? Mm -hmm. So that's one potential application. You could think about stimulating the part of the brain that's underactive, activating it and kind of relieving the symptoms of depression. There's other uh, types of uh, interfaces in terms of uh, restoring other neural interfaces that are less cognitive but more motor-based. So, for instance, uh, restoring physical function to people who have had a stroke and are uh, disabled due Mm. to the stroke. You know, they're either some sort of paralysis. And then turns out that you can uh, restore some degree of function by stimulating the areas of the cortex that uh, that were disabled during the stroke. And then there's pain management and a lot of different types of uh, applications. The the really interesting work that I can see moving forward is the combination of uh, neural recording and stimulation simultaneously, really starting to stimulate one part of the brain based upon the activity in a different part of the brain, and then you can get into very sophisticated types of, of applications. If the device were to sense when you were slipping into some sort of negative state, it could kind of prop you, prop you out of it by stimulating the, you know, different parts of the brain. Oh, so that's that's along the lines of neural feedback. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, it's actually. Well, what, yeah, usually when I think of neural feedback, I think about some sort of signal based upon the underlying neural activity to the user, who mm-hmm. then modulates his own neural rhythms, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, but you could also think of it in terms of just the device sensing and stimulating and skipping the user interaction and just automatically eliminating that state without relying uh. on any uh, subjective, you know, kind of will to do so. Right. So, I mean, essentially you kind of could program in like these are the states I want to avoid and, right, right, and it exactly. basically take care of it for exactly. you on some sort of, yeah. you know, subconscious and- yeah, and, and all this stuff is, is cool and interesting. My real kind of long-term vision mm-hmm. for this type of technology mm-hmm. is, is a little bit different. And I, I see, you know, what I'm doing now is just kind of stepping stones along the way. But I think the real interesting, powerful technology that could evolve out of all this is outside of individual people. You know, everything we've been talking about so far is all within one person. You know, if you have... You know, you're trying to manage your own state. Right. But really where it becomes really powerful is between two people when you can start talking about uh, some sort of empathic training. So Mm. we we typically use words to communicate with one another. However, words are a very lossy communication uh, protocol. That is, I have this feeling or I've had this experience and then I compress it down into a word and I say that word to you and then you expand that word and infer what I 
experienced or what I'm feeling. Right. Uh, but but you never really know exactly what I experienced. Right. Right. You're you're kind of inferring. You're you're making a, an educated guess. What would be really kind of uh, powerful, I feel, is to have just a direct kind of link between mm. people where you could really feel what the other person was feeling. That's, and you can think about the kind of empathic training, um, you, you know, how we can develop empathy mm. in people. Uh, this is exactly what empathy is, right? Right. And so the, you know, that, but that's, that's so far down the road. It's, it's, you can't really start working on that type of technology right now. You, you just got to take, you know, little steps and work on these other interesting problems along the way to kind of pay the bills. Uh, one other thing I was, I was interested in, in getting your take on is, and this is something I've been really interested in the past few years, just seeing little bits and pieces here and there in books and uh, newspapers and magazines, and that's what's, what's the current state of meditation research mm. uh, and, and looking at the brain and meditation and, and what's actually happening there? You know what? I- I'm not an expert in that kind of sub-discipline of mm. neuroscience. I mean, I, I keep up on it uh, to a certain extent. Uh, but what, what I do know is that it's, it, meditation certainly has an effect. And so there's a researcher at Harvard Medical School, Sarah Lazar, Dr. Sarah Lazar. And she showed a couple of years ago that long-term meditators had thicker sensory cortex than non-meditators mm-hmm. and so this points that meditation has some actually affects the structural uh, basis of our brain and um, as to why why it's thicker I mean the current hypothesis is not that meditators build up the thickness of their cortex but uh, through aging through the aging process there is a atrophy in the brain according to one's age. Mm-hmm. And the current thought is that meditation slows this process or could potentially even stop it. Um, and such, such that, you know, you, you retain the, the, the same kind of uh, number of neurons, if that's in fact what's underlying this effect, throughout your life, whereas m- m- people who do not meditate will lose those uh, or will have uh, structural changes that decrease the, the thickness of cortex. So that was a very exciting piece of research. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is probably about two years old. That uh, is very exciting research that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, as far as the other types of research, I mean, there have been some EEG studies that kind of, you know, different bands of oscillations in the brain mm-hmm. become more predominant in meditators. I think gamma, for instance, might become more predominant or more synchronized mm-hmm. in meditators. We really don't know what this means, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, all we know is that there's meditation induces changes in the brain, but we don't know what the effect of those, those changes really is. So again, we're at such an infancy in our understanding. Mm-hmm. And, that's on the, and that's more on the neuroscience side because, uh, I mean, I guess we do know a little bit about what it means based on the subjective reports of, of some of these sure. contemplatives, but even those are very, depending on the traditions and... Right, a lot of variability there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. it's like... Especially in how people describe it, even if it's the same experience between two people, they may describe it, you know, completely differently. Mm. And this is something that uh, I found interesting. What do, you, what do you think the chances are that at some point we'd be able to get a sophisticated, universal um, kind of neural map 
of what happens when people start meditating, continue to meditate, and become, you know, advanced meditators. Do you think that even across traditions, do you think there might be uh, potentially universal kind of neural things that are changing over time? I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty speculative. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that that could potentially open a can of worms, especially when you're going cross-disciplinary. But I, I think it, within a given technique, let's say, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think across people within a technique. So, for instance, all. Uh, potentially, let's just say all Buddhist meditators right. um, who who have a in, who are practicing some sort of insight meditation. I, I would anticipate that they would have very similar patterns of, mm. of changes, or their their brains would evolve over time very similarly mm-hmm. to one another. Now that's and fascinating. Because, and, and again, this is because you know there there are maps of the subjective experience right. that are pretty replicable from right. one person to the next. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's you know, it's just a no-brainer to think that you would have the same kind of a map of the neural evolution um, over time that would remain pretty stable from person to person. Uh, but again, this is going to take a long time to really suss out exactly what these changes are. Yeah, not to, not to mention there'd have to be some sort of interest in mapping out this particular kind of map. Right, and before that's really going to happen, you're going to have to show that um, there's some sort of benefit right. to this, and 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 this is, and I think people are starting to do this, and there's a, a lot of research that's starting to come online yeah. regarding the benefits right. of meditative technologies. Yeah. And as this gets more public attention, then the science will follow yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, just past five, ten years, the Mind and Life Institute, which is here in Boulder, getting started up, and and then recently, Alan Wallace is finishing up a pretty big research project called the Shamata Project. Those are two yeah. things I'm aware of that are that are pretty spectacular, and they're trying to do just that, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, Alan's really on the cutting edge uh, in, in that respect. Uh, I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating the results of the Shamata Project. And he's not only looking at neural correlates, I think he's doing some EEG there, so he's looking at the neural correlates, but also other biological correlates mm-hmm. um, of stress, you know, looking at stress hormones in the blood and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, going um, back to going back to the, this is one of my main interests here, is the neural maps of kind of meditative cartographies. What could the potential application of, of those sorts of maps be? Uh, that, so you could think about a device yeah. that could assess your current state, assess yep. where you were on the map, and then give you a feedback signal, right. lights, sounds, whatever, vibrations, uh, that would allow you to then navigate further on the neural map. So that's, that's the direct application, is being able to essentially refine meditative technologies to accelerate the process. So you're, you, you may not have to sit <laughs> facing the wall for, you know, two decades. Uh, and, <laughs> and, miss, and, and, and miss all of that fun? <laughs> I mean, not that there's anything wrong with sitting. No, I, I mean, know, I agree. Sitting. It's been yeah, both of I our mean, paths. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, if we can accelerate that through some sort of neural feedback that's, I mean, that's key, right? That would be awesome. Absolutely. And I guess there are two things that come up with regards to that possibility for me. And one is how that would relate to ethics. And then two is how that would relate to kind of other technologies that are happening, more more kind of web technologies where there's this collaborative, very fast, iterative feedback cycles where there's a constant learning happening. Mm-hmm. So, so the ethical part is simply if you separate that 
meditative training from an ethical basis. If it's just you have a neural device, you know, let's just call it the mm. enlightenment machine. Uh, <laughs> how does one then learn? Right. Would not right. having well, ethical training impact the way that you understood w- what it is that that machine would help, you know, unfold in you? Mm, yeah. And again, I'm just, this is all conjecture. At sure, this point. sure. Yeah, yeah, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I would say the, the kind of the ethical training is definitely a requirement. I mean, there's, there's just so many examples of people who have, you know, had these types of kind of spiritual experiences or, or whatever, but without, you know, being in a tradition that, that has this other kind of behavioral training associated with it, they either don't really understand the significance of what happens to them, or even after they've had very kind of spiritual, quote-unquote, experiences, continue to go out and do kind of naughty things in the world, right? So I, I think this ethical training is, is a very important part of it. But I would actually be surprised if you could kind of go through this process without having some sort of revolution in, in at least the way you interact with the world and your ideas of who you are and what is acceptable behavior. I would be very surprised if there were no changes associated with that due to this type of training that we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I guess I would I would be surprised too. But at the same time, it's it's interesting, especially in the Buddhist tradition, how directly correlated some of these different notions are. For instance, the notion of compassion and emptiness being two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. And compassion is definitely it's definitely a relative ethical type of thing. I mean, it has to do with someone over here feeling something for someone over there. So it's it's definitely an empathic training type of thing versus, you know, emptiness, which oftentimes is described in terms of their, you know, it doesn't have to be described in terms of a self at all. And so it's interesting that those things are always correlated so strongly. And the Bodhisattva vow is another great example of that, that mm-hmm. somehow having a higher ethical stance to want to help other people actually enables one to make progress in this other training into insight or emptiness or whatever. I guess it kind of boils down a little bit to the question of, will these neurocorrelates or neuromaps, can they actually, can they actually map out or explain to us the, the foundations of ethics? And, and this is an interesting, maybe I don't know how much you're f- familiar with developmental psychology or developmentalism, but this is a question of whether there actually are biocorrelates to structures of um, development. For instance, you know, Lawrence Kohlberg's the famous one, pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional moral development that he found. I don't know how familiar you are with this, but it's, it would be interesting to see are there actual biological correlates to these things? Or Oh, yeah, I think there absolutely are. Um, neuroethics is a new field, relative new field, uh, that's really, it's, it's pretty huge right now. And really, it's, it's due to these kind of brain imaging technologies that I've been talking about, fMRI, where you can actually get a visual of what's going on in the brain mm-hmm. at a pretty coarse level, at mm-hmm. least. This is really allowing us to look at, okay, what parts of the brain are involved in making ethical decisions. Of course, there's going to be neural correlates. I mean, sure. this, isn't, this isn't some sort of supernatural <laughs> right. um, explanation. That we're, we're after here, I, I wouldn't find that very satisfying. Uh, and, and yeah, you can start looking at, okay, and then there's people with different brain damage 
who respond differently to different ethical challenges from, from the norm. And, you know, you can start getting at these, and that's another way to get at these kind of neural correlates of ethical decision-making. And, and, and I would think that if you had some sort of technology that could use the neural map, I, I really don't think it would allow you to kind of skip over the ethical aspect of the world's contemplative traditions. Yeah, um, it, it, I think this is this is really. It, it seems like you're pointing out they seem to be somewhat inseparable in terms of the understanding that underlies the ethics and arriving at this understanding. It almost implies that one interacts very differently and more ethically in the world. Mm. Interesting. And uh, I realized I didn't get to the second point about this enlightenment machine, which I've, I've been thinking about. And that's um, if it were using kind of similar technologies that are starting to arise today in the web, where I'd be using the enlightenment machine to be helping me progressing through these kind of uh, state stages, these neural stages. And it could actually be sending information back to some sort of, you know, central place. And there could be actual data being collected about the users of this machine, how it's working, and could actually fine-tune the software and find out how that impacts the rate of progress or whatever, and actually start having some real empirical data on contemplative maturity. And I think that'd be a fascinating thing to actually mm -hmm. have data on. Yeah, it would be. It has some sort of, quote-unquote, objective uh, assessment of, of, of uh, where you're at or, you know, yeah. Right. Kind of double check because there's lots of claims out there. Everyone, you know, lots of claims. People claim lots of different things. And absolutely. And it's, and it's sometimes it's difficult to know. Right. You know, absolutely. Um, it's what somebody's claiming is true, and I know this firsthand. And and there's people who take issue with people making claims, and to have some some sort of you know, kind of objective assessment would be great. And I think this is, again, where Alan Wallace is really kind of leading the way. And it's going to take a lot more uh, resources than, uh, and people kind of involved to, to make this happen. But mm -hmm. I think Alan's really a pioneer in this, in this field. Mm, absolutely. Cool. Well, I, I'm feeling like we've covered quite a bit of territory. Are you, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or wanted to add to the discussion? No, I think we pretty much covered it. Cool. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure, Vince. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by c for chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference.
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.